Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. Your hosts are Andrew Douglas, Managing Principal, FCW Lawyers, and Karen Liu, Principal Consultant, Sound Consulting. G'day, how are you, Nina? You're definitely <laughs> not Karen. Yeah, <laughs> definitely not Karen. Well, I think a, a word out for Karen, she's got COVID with the poor bugger, so she is oh, not yeah. here today, but yeah. thanks for stepping in. Nina, it's not a scary thing to work with me, is it? Oh, no, you get less than 24 hours notice. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, interesting stuff, new government. Lots of changes already. Changes starting to happen already. We thought from the indications that we got from the Labor Party prior to the election that they weren't going to jump into IR. That's not proving to be correct. No. So we're not going to talk about what's going to happen now. We talked a little bit about it last week. We'll talk a lot about it on the 100th when we're dealing with the changes to the Sex Discrimination Act and the other issues that are coming up, which the government, as a result of the Teal's support, now realise is a priority to actually nail. Yeah. What we'll do is each week after the 100th we'll update of what actually is happening. So don't forget to register. Uh, yes, don't forget to register. Thanks, Sophie. I didn't see the reminder there, but nonetheless, <laughs> Sophie Chopping is out there pointing fingers at us. Do register for the 100th. And we'd love to actually see you in person. Also to say goodbye to Karen because yeah. it's Karen's last gig and she will be better by then. We'll go and infuse her with drips or whatever <laughs> she needs. Probably one of the interesting issues that's coming up at the moment is minimum wage case and minimum ward case have come. And the Labor government have said, that they, they started off by saying they were going to push for 5.1% because yeah, that was the inflation rate. lots of media And we've it. seen a big step back from them on that basis. It's so very I thought, telling. I think it is telling. It is telling. <laughs> Just this is a statutory analysis that has to be undertaken by an expert panel. And so the only issue that goes to inflation is what is the, the living cost as it's described. But there's four other elements that you actually look at. You look at the economy and how businesses are going. You look at inclusion and Nina quite rightly raised when we are chatting about this, where you think inclusion would be something that increases wages, but, of course, when you look at trying to get people of a diversity into a business and people are inclined to hire the bread and butter of what they know, yeah. if you push wages up, it'll go to bread and butter. It won't go to people who are different. So yeah, weirdly has the opposite effect. It does. Yeah. So the same as the fourth element is equal wages for equal pay, equal work. Again, we're going to see this conflating of wage costs to try and keep people within business. And the last element is looking at junior wages and junior training. And once again, if you increase the cost of junior training, nobody will hire them. So there are these, there's a bit of a counterpoint to the living costs. We explained last week a little bit that the living cost is is not well analysed, that in fact when you look at the group of people who are on minimum wages and lowest classifications, what they consume has gone up by over 25%. So they consume Huge, petrol, yeah. they're inclined to consume cigarettes more than we are, they're inclined to consume more alcohol, more takeaway foods, not organic, not, you know, what I'm trying to say, <laughs> not food that's unprocessed. And those prices have gone through the roof because they're all connected to supply chain risk. So my guess is 4% and I'll tell you why, <laughs> okay? might be a little bit more, but I don't think it'll be much. I think the first thing is that when you look at the expert panel, there are four reportees out of the seven who come from relatively conservative backgrounds. Yeah, very okay. employer supporting. So they're not going to go for the highest mark. And, I mean, Nina, you spoke about the last 20 years. We've seen a gradual reduction in the true purchasing power of those rates. Yeah. And that's because these other four out of the five factors continue to prevail, that we're, we're actually 
our wage cost to product is significantly higher than anywhere else but Japan and South Korea. So in the market we're Shocking. competing, we're, we're paying more on a major input. The other factor which will come into it is the other inputs in the business are being met by really significantly inflationary forces and that's really concerning because they're not 5.1% if you're exposed to overseas trade where getting in boxes now three times to four times the cost a container what it was two years ago, your actual inputs are very high. So, look, that's why we think it's going to be four. What does it mean, Nina, though, if you've got non-award employees mm -hmm. and you're paying them on a common law contract and you're paying them above the yeah. order? So it's definitely going to affect a whole a raft of different types of employees, particular non-award employees on contracts because obviously it will set the new minimum wage that they have to be on. So you definitely will need to audit all your contracts, especially if you unfortunately have one of those contracts which state very clearly it has to be a certain percentage or certain dollar value above the minimum wage because we are expecting a significant wage increase more than previous years, a lot of employers will need to carefully scrutinise that. Yeah. yeah, And you can't get away with it if you've got an enterprise agreement that's lower because 206 subsection 4 of the Act says bad luck, the yeah. minimum wage order or the minimum award order will, will defeat that. The one thing I want you to be wary about is this. So you, minimum award comes in, you go, great, okay, look, it's um, <laughs> it's 4%. We're already paying 2% above. So what we'll do is we'll just um, we'll just absorb it and pay 2% more. Well, does your enterprise agreement allow you to do that? So you need to have a look at the words. But you can do a level of absorption, but when we do enterprise bargaining, one of the things we do is a competition analysis of mm -hmm. who in your industry, you know, what in your industry is being charged the rates. We go and look at enterprise agreement. And also what is your competitors in labour? Because it's all very well having cheap labour costs comparatively. But if it means you lose access to already tenuous supply of labour, yeah. your business is in is in. I was going to say shit street, but I'm not allowed to say that. Am I? <laughs> but you're in, you're in you, a bit. You said it anyway. I <laughs> know. Oh, I thought I'd ask for apologies later. Okay. Anyway, so I just thought I'd raise that stuff with you. It is a really interesting space. One July is the day, yep. so it's not far we'll, away. We'll probably find out before then, but it takes effect first full pay period on or after. One yeah. July. So what we will see though is the government submission by next week. So we'll give you an mm -hmm. update. But uh, they have backed away from what they were saying, and we're way behind time now. So let's go on to the <laughs> next on the next item. All right. Uh, <laughs> now here is the Scott Morrison case. It, it is a clickbait title, though. So <laughs> yeah, well, it is a clickbait. Now, Scott Morrison is, in fact, the professor in this case, not um, a recently departed prime minister. <laughs> this was a case run by DP Dean, and you remember DP Dean, who is the the um, deputy president who all um, for anti-vax, all for anti-vax, and yeah. got a clip around, clip around the ear from the full bench. <laughs> Nonetheless, she's made another decision of questionable merit that's been hit by the full bench who's really given her a huge belting around yeah. the decision. Now, we're not here to judge a decision, probably already have, but <laughs> not here. this was a case where the professor went on a retreat with a student. He said she, he wasn't directly, wasn't involved in that he corrected exams. There was no influence involved. He said she consented to swimming naked and kissing. She obviously said, I didn't do that because that was the nature of the whole case. Yeah. And two things happened in this case. One is, even if she did consent, and you remember our criticism, what a load of bollocks. I mean, Irrelevant. Because of the, the power difference that sits yeah. between them and the policy, critically, oh. the policy said, there were not to be relations yeah. of this nature. So 
the full bench said, yes, this is absolute nonsense. Consent and is not the issue. The next issue is she was sort of, I think, as I forgot what the word she was, was painted out as painted an, as an embittered, embittered seductress yeah. on the most thin amounts oh, of evidence. Now, remember, we talk about one today. Yeah, and that, the, the full bench really got stuck in about that and said, quite rightly, victim blaming is not where we should be. And in any event, there was no proper evidence to form such a conclusion. And, and I say that now because we're going to talk about Brigham Shaw and we're going to keep talking about what is the test in determining misconduct? And that is when a serious allegation has been made, yes, is the balance of probabilities, but you must have very real evidence when a more serious allegation is being made. Now, this serious allegation includes in relation to the victim. So actually coming to a conclusion that she is a um, embittered seductress on almost no evidence is, <laughs> is terrible to utilise such an expression in any event but without any legal basis or compass. So I just want you to know the decision has been failed and not surprisingly the full bench are holding on to it to conclude the matter. Yeah. Which is sort of the final criticism really, isn't it, when it comes yeah. down to it. And the other thing is there was evidence in the initial case that he was utilising his influence and yeah. was in a position of influence which made it all the worse. So let's yeah. go on to the next case. It's enough of beating up that case. So this one is a really interesting case, but it essentially was a test case where there were six international students. I'll say eight just to get it right. Oh, eight, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting test case. <laughs> Two already knocked off. <laughs> who were claiming underpayments against a whole bunch of different companies who were already deregistered. And the court found, look, it did not matter because the directors and owners of the companies were directly involved in the contraventions. They could make personal cost orders against those people, even though the companies... Well, not a cost orders, personally pursue them for that, yes, that loss. for the underpayments. So it's really just a huge case because a lot of companies will try to run away from these underpayments. Oh, they'll phoenix. Yeah. They'll phoenix to get and away And think they'll it. get away with it. And the court has said, no, look, this is warning shot. This is not going to be allowed. And nothing could be a bigger warning shot than the new Labor government saying they are going to invest and empower the Fair Work Ombudsman and provide different methods of raising complaints through the Fair Work Ombudsman yeah. to actually pursue these issues and to criminalise them. So a good warning. What about Leggett and um, Hawkesbury Racing Club? I just thought I'd see if that's the next one. Yes, it is. Yeah. Do you want me to try and explain this one? Yeah. Because this is an odd case. So this was an adverse action claim where a person was terminated and not paid a number of entitlements, including long service leave, usual range of stuff, and also brought a workers' compensation claim around psychological injury, which was resolved and it meant that there had been a payment in respect of a particular head of damage, yep. which was also being considered in the adverse action claim. So workers' comp claim settled. Yep. In relation to the same head of damage, there's a payment being made and in the workers' compensation legislation, there is a cap as to what can be paid, okay? And for some reason that I've not yet been able to work out, somebody thought it would be a good argument to say that the cap that existed in the state legislation should apply to an unrelated federal piece of legislation. And not surprisingly, the Federal Court of Australia, after they got off the ground and stopped laughing, <laughs> said, what a bunch of bollocks. Yeah. And <laughs> goes against go the Constitution. Yeah, it goes against the Constitution. But in any event, there's cases such as Reddings, which are 40 years old, that says you are allowed to take into consideration the formulation of the damages claim or compensation in this case, what has already been paid in respect to that and do an offset. So we're doing that just because we wanted to show you there's a lot of idiots in the world. Yeah. It's not just us, <laughs> all right? Okay, next case. <laughs> 
<laughs> I've got no idea how we're going for time because I haven't got the run sheet. But I think we're going. I think we've caught up with those ones. Yeah. Yeah. No, Safe's got the run sheet and she's on the room. So Cobble and Wellways is a case that we always wanted to see. I think. We know that you're fatigued with vaccination cases and you're fatigued with my railing about vaccination (laughs) cases. But you'll also remember the Mount Arthur Cole case, which was the BHP and CFMEU case around non-mandated policies for vaccination. And that full bench decision set out the process under which you look at consultation. And remember for us, consultation has two parts, which is predetermination, decision-making, safety, post-determination, award. So Mr Cobble worked at Wellways, which was a mental health and disability service provider. He'd worked during lockdown and so he'd worked from home. He didn't want to be vaccinated. Very against (laughs) (laughs) Profoundly against vaccination. (laughs) Wellways decided, look, the risk of transmission, two-way risk of transmission to To clients clients and clients to staff is massive because of the very nature of the personal interaction that's involved. They put a draft policy together. They took it to their managers. The managers then went and collaborated and worked. And they consulted the union as well. I'm yeah. getting to it. Just one, one, <laughs> I know you're new into this, but just hold off. Yeah? So they, they got all the feedback from individuals, managers and back, and then they went to the HSRs and the union and mm. they did the second layer of it. Yeah, so very far. What this has actually done is it's, it's front-loaded the award part and it's put all before a decision has been made to make sure that nobody would suffer as a result of it. That was all concluded in about October and a letter was sent out with the settled policy. Um, Mr Cole didn't respond immediately, but a couple of weeks later said, you won't be surprised from a person who's an anti-vaccination. Many- it was December. It was two months after. No, no, it was 21 October. Yeah, it was, sorry, December. Yeah. That's right. Sent it to the general counsel who then responded saying, no, no, you've got to come to work. This is the reasons mm. why. They still all went back. They were going to be back in the new year. He was then given a direction and show cause because he'd refused. Yeah. And his response to that is, well, I'm going to work from home. So two issues were alive. One, was the consultation process correct? And secondly, can a person just unilaterally decide, because they work from home, that they can work from home? Or is that, is that an issue that you waive? Now, the key in this was it went before Michelle Bissett. <laughs> okay, and then Michelle Bissett is an ex-ACTU advocate. and Very employee-friendly. Very focused, generous. Focused, focused. No, but on you... consultation, she is a stickler. Yeah. And her... We've been involved in a number of cases where Michelle has really pushed the boundaries and said what consultation looks like. And it needs to be generous. Yeah. So this is the person deciding this case. And what she said is, no, this was a really good demonstration of what consultation looks like. What a company should do, yeah. Yeah. And secondly, which I think is really important, she then went on to say, and the contract says where you work, you don't get to decide where you work. The contract says you work at work. Mm-hmm. And for the people who constantly go through this, oh, but what what if we want to get people back to work? Well, look at their contracts. Yeah. <laughs> like, just look at their contract. The issue is, is it a risk than how you yeah, manage that's, it? That's the, that's the consultation process. Yeah. But the contract is the contract is the contract. Mm. That's who you're hiring. Good, I didn't rave much. <laughs> okay. okay, let's go on and have a look. What are we up to now? Condonation. Condonation. Well, this is... I want to, I'll start this conversation. I think I'll probably end it too because this is, my, this is more my skill base, isn't it? You've probably heard Nina and I wax lyrically. I want to put oh, an old expression yes. about condemnation, which is you can't punish that which you permit. That's the old saying. I think I've made that saying You just summarised the whole topic. <laughs> yeah, so let's move on to the problem. No, so condemnation came from an old, old case called 
Phillips and Fox. Uh, Foxtel, yes, that's right. That's Fox, right. Yeah. yeah, 1872 case, which basically said if an employer is fully aware of actions that are taken which are misconduct in any form and elects, now remember, I'll explain this language in a second, and elects to do nothing about it, they can't come back at a later time and revisit that behaviour and punish a person for it. Now, that's the old common law doctrine of waiver. Yeah. And that says where you become fully aware of a wrongdoing and you don't take an action which you're entitled to to accept it in contract terms as repudiation, yeah. you can no longer rely on it later for repudiatory conduct or termination. <laughs> so that's the old law. And then we come to a more recent case, which is NYSTAR, which is a Tasmanian case. I think it was 2011 or something, but I'm, I might be making that up because I haven't looked at the case date. I'll let you do that for us. NYSTAR was a case where... 2014. Were, yeah, where a group of employees, but two particularly, had done over one supervisor and they're moving on to their second supervisor and that supervisor stood up and they made an allegation of bullying against that supervisor. Particularly two of them did, who were high-performing individuals, but difficult souls. And the investigation revealed it was them who was bullying That's the That's right, yeah. yeah. You want to tell the story? <laughs> <laughs> so that's exactly right, they did. And as they're moving towards the termination of these guys, and they did proceed to terminate, what the court said is, well, you're actually relying on past conduct which you've, you can't rely on because yeah. you have waived it. Yeah, they had prior knowledge of all of the previous instances. But more importantly, and very importantly, now the more current behaviour is behaviour you've permitted in the mm. past and not just from them. Yeah. And that's the more modern doctrine of condemnation emerging. So you've got the old waiver that exists there and there's more, more recent doctrine of condemnation which says, and in respect of past behaviour which you have permitted, you are unable now to go and belt something unless it's very extreme behaviour and there's, we had a case three weeks ago where the nature of the, the past behaviour was mild but the current behaviour was demonstrably bad that it wouldn't be unfair to terminate. But this is much more a creature of the Fair Work Act or and, and its predecessors than it is of the common law, okay? So what are you supposed to do, Andrew, if you are a HR manager or a CEO and you're faced with a situation where, look, there has been a history of condoning or accepting this inappropriate behaviour, does that mean your hands are tied? You can't act if they do it again? And you can tell it's a Dorothy Biggs question. I just <laughs> <laughs> Even the practice matter, which you did, it was very impressive. No, you do have <laughs> And what you do is you oh draw a line gosh. in the sand. So you, you address the behaviours that have existed. You go out and say, look, we've got a new process. You go and speak directly to people and say, look, we acknowledge we've accepted this behaviour in the past. And that's a very important part because to get around past yeah. waiver, you must identify the wrongdoing that you will no longer accept. So in the future, what we're going to do is this. And what I would always suggest in that process is that you say, we're going to have a moratorium of a month or so where we can promise there'll be no termination unless it's an agrarious breach. And we may deal with warnings. But after that, it becomes a golden rule. Yeah. And understand any further of this behaviour will lead to immediate termination. And you have to apply it uniformly yeah. at that stage. And that's right. Not oh, no, he's, he's a good worker, I'm not going to tell him. Yeah. This is how it always starts because, remember, those good workers are some of the ones who turn feral after five years of being allowed to be bad. Or also the opposite as well. Don't target someone on that behaviour just because you dislike them and you let everyone else go. And it is the truth, isn't it, that so often what lands on our desk is a level of sensitivity around a difficult employee where people have tolerated, tolerated and tolerated yeah. 
and then they come and say, look, we've just got to get rid of them. They've done it again. And you look at the nature of the wrongdoing this time compared to what's been accepted in the past, and you go, but this is less. Yeah. <laughs> That's always what yeah. happens. Whereas if it was very, very bad, so let's use intoxication as an example. In the past, people have turned up late because they've been out partying the night before, but they weren't intoxicated when they come to work. But we sort of tolerate it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes a bit of smell of beer, but sort of the, the pub test of how drunk people are, we, we've accepted them. And then they turn up really drunk and they're using a power saw. Oh. Well, that's termination. That's termination anytime. And condemnation is not going to get them out of the no. game. Okay. But if, and the other examples, they've turned up drunk and been driving forklifts. And this time they turn up and there's a slight smell of alcohol on them. And they, and it's actually on their shirt and they were drinking late in the night, but there's, you've given them an LK test and it's low. You can't terminate them for that because you've allowed shocking behavior before. So there you go, and we better get going because the case study is a big one, and and it's by the way a bit of Greek history here. <laughs> Over to you. All right. So Cassandra was one of six engineers in the graduate program at Apollo Engineering Proprietary Limited, Apollo. Her supervisor was Ajax Troy, <laughs> the head of water operations at Apollo. Ajax was also a director and one of four shareholders in Apollo. Ajax had made several intrusive and uncomfortable comments towards Cassandra during a site visit after inquiring about her weekend, including, I hope you were a good girl, before laughing and winking. And those young boys in your graduate group would never get how sophisticated you are. Apollo had a modern and well-drafted policy around bullying, harassment and discrimination, and the scope included all employees, officers and contractors of Apollo. Cassandra raised her concerns with the HR partner for her area, Kleister, who said, what kind of name is Kleister? But well, it's a shortening for Cliceris, which was the oh, person who ended up killing okay. Cassandra in many ways. He's just a nice guy <laughs> looking out for you. He obviously rates your skills don't listen to the gossip. Similar behaviour continued and when Cassandra raised it with her peers, they all agreed he was a great guy and she needn't worry. Over time, his comments became more risque, but she would laugh along with him, albeit uncomfortably. Apollo's water team retreat was taking place that weekend and Ajax had offered to give Cassandra a lift to the venue. She declined his offer, but when she had a bad argument with her boyfriend She's that night... She's taken away all my Greek names <laughs> of where they kill Cassandra, so the thing has gone from there as well. This and is getting he, worse. And he refused to drive her. <laughs> she rang Ajax to see if she could still give if he could still give her the lift. Cassandra briefly explained what had happened and then burst into tears. Ajax's reaction was generous and Cassandra felt safe with his response. When Ajax arrived at her house, Cassandra was waiting outside, still sobbing. Ajax hugged her and held her until she stopped crying. The retreat was just what she needed. Ajax was busy presenting, but he still checked in and although a little awkward, she felt thankful he cared. On the last day, Cassandra told Ajax she would go down to the beach for a swim before they drove home as it was hot. Ajax said he would wander down too. When they arrived at the beach, Cassandra got straight into the water in her bikini. Ajax asked what the water was like and she confirmed it was lovely. Ajax took all his clothes off and dived in. He strammed straight up to Cassandra and hugged her and kissed her. Ajax claimed Cassandra had replied that the water was beautiful and he should just take his clothes off and come in. He also claimed they were already at the beginning of a consensual relationship and had hugged many times and other people had seen that. The hug and kiss were consensual, but when he got back to the hotel, she came in and said she didn't need a lift as her boyfriend was coming. Cassandra reported the incident. She said she was traumatised and stunned by what he did. Cassandra said she never consented to the hugging, never said jump in, and was deeply distressed by his hugging her in the water naked and attempting to kiss her after. 
A workplace investigation found three witnesses who saw Ajax hug Cassandra briefly after the first session on the first day. They all agreed she looked sad before the hug but appeared better afterwards. Ajax was not stood down during the investigation. He came to work as usual and spoke in a surprised tone to fellow workers, some of whom were witnesses, and explained she was going through a rough time with her boyfriend. Cassandra felt unsafe coming to work and was advised to take personal leave. The investigation took three weeks to conclude and found the allegations of sexual harassment and misconduct unsubstantiated based on the rule in Brigginshaw. All right, so let's go quickly through the questions. Should Ajax have been stood down? Yes, So the policy is consent or not, he should not have done what he did. He should have been stood down, Mm -hmm. even on the basis of the consensual relationship, which he alleges. Why? For two reasons. One, he was an imminent risk to her health and it was a serious matter. Two, there was a risk of him interfering with witnesses because of his position of influence, which he did. Two, could Cassandra have brought a general protections claim around how the investigation was managed? Uh, we talked about this in Lang La- and Leighton Industries, which is a case. Three weeks in such a circumstance is a long time, okay? And during that period of time, her health and safety has to be protected. What did they do? The director did take personal leave. Well, no, before they did that, they oh, left him there. Yeah. So she could never come to work because she said how traumatised she was. Anybody who said uh, and was visibly traumatised had to workplace. work in the same area. So... Yes, she has a good general protections claim. And if she had a psychological breakdown and she never was able to come back to work, we're talking in the hundreds of thousands of dollars here, not the tens of thousands of dollars. Could Cassandra have made a successful work claim? You were catching up on time here, aren't we? Yeah, I think you answered that one already. Well, I say yes. (laughs) (laughs) Because there's no proper reasonable management action. Yeah. Okay? Now, it's not even her performance that's at risk here. So... Reasonable management action is really not much of an argument at all in this case, but her treatment was shabby. She would be successful. Yeah. And if we looked at the size of the employer, let's say the employer has remuneration of $3 million in the professional services type of work, $3 million remuneration in Victoria would put them at about $100 to $120,000 given the industry type as the yearly premium. She never comes back to work. That means next year is 150. The year after that is 200. Wow. So you've got around about $130,000 added to premium over a three-year cycle. And all you had to do was stand him down, get it done quickly. Just do a fair process, fair proper process. Yeah, and she's got a general Gosh. protections claim, which is probably worth four or $500,000. So, succeed on. Yeah, so you've got six or $700,000 of loss just sitting there. Now, the next question is, we can slow down now, can't we? We can slow right down there. Uh, do you want to read that slowly? Should Ajax have been disciplined? <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's not the yeah, answer. It's got to be more than that. We've got a minute and five seconds to go. Yeah, he definitely sexually harassed her. He should have been terminated. Yeah. Well, isn't that interesting? As an officer oh. of the business and an owner in the business, he never stopped being an employee and the safety obligations always were to the site. So if we go through what the breaches were really quickly because we don't have that amount of time, he clearly breached his Section 25 duty under the Occupational Health and Safety yep. of exercising reasonable care mm-hmm. to protect them. He breached his obligations under discrimination law and yep. harassment law both at a state and federal level. Yep. He breached his common law duties to exercise reasonable care to provide a safe workplace. That's as an officer and owner. Could he be terminated and still remain a shareholder? Yes, he can be. Mm-hmm. So really sort of interesting process. Where that would land, we don't have this opportunity, whether it would be a final warning or whatever was given, but what he'd have to be is withdrawn from the area. Definitely. Yeah, and at this stage you'd, you'd bring somebody in who'd do a cultural survey to actually check 
whether this is something deeper and broader. All right, we are on time just then and there. Nina, thanks for filling in at the very last minute. That was fantastic. And I enjoyed breakfast in the green room, (laughs) (laughs) which is spec in King King Street, Queen Street. And see you all next week. We are two weeks away from the 100th. Be there with Karen and us to say goodbye. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye.